Let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. On November 17, 2012, a fisherman by the name of Jose Salvador set off from the coast of Mexico in a small boat for what he believed would be a one-day fishing trip. But a few hours into his excursion, a massive storm blew him off course, destroying his engines and communications. And after two days of searching, the authorities concluded that Mr. Salvador had drowned at sea. And like everyone else, they gave up. But little did they know, Jose was still out there. (laughs) And he floated along, adrift at sea, get this, for 14 months. True story. Until eventually, over 6,000 miles later, he washed up on the shore of an island in the Pacific and was rescued alive. A little famished, but alive. And he was able to survive that long. I saw an interview with him where he said he was able to survive that long by eating fish that he could catch with his hands, turtles, and jellyfish. (laughs) I thought, man, it's a sore throat. He also survived off capturing rainwater from the sky, drinking that. But most importantly, he survived off hope. Jose Salvador had an extraordinary will to live. He spent every day at sunrise and sunset where he could gaze into the horizon without burning his eyes out, looking for ships. And day after day, week after week, month after month, he never gave up. He never ran out of hope. You know, it's said that a man can live 40 days without food. Three days without water, eight minutes without air, but only one second without hope. And you'll find that to be true if you read other amazing stories of people who survived against the odds. People trapped on mountains or out in the desert or in the heart of the jungle, and yet somehow, some way, they lived. Hope is a major reason. And that's also true for you and for me. Though I doubt any of us have ever been stranded at sea, and hopefully we won't ever. That would be terrible. We also live and survive each day on hope. Whether whether we realize it or not, we all have hope. Hope is what gets us out of the bed in the morning. We hope in something, something good, something positive. But it's important to understand that our vision, our typical view of hope is different from the Bible's view of hope. When most of us use the word hope, we are stating a wish or a desire. We say things like, man, I really hope it does not snow in April. Or we say, you know, I really hope the Royals win this game. I think that happened last night, did it? Okay. Or we say, you know, I hope this sermon isn't very long. Nobody says that, right? No. But, you know, when the preacher doesn't get to preach the week before, from what I understand, he gets double time the next week. So, no, but this is how we talk about hope. These are wishes. We don't really know the outcome. But the the Bible's definition of hope is, is different. It's this. It's a confident expectation of something good in the future. You see the difference there? Rather than a wish, it's a confident expectation. It's a belief that this will happen one day, and this belief is what motivates us forward. And as followers of Jesus, that's the kind of hope we have. We have a confident expectation in what's to come, and that is so important for us as we follow Jesus. So this morning, we're going to look at hope, specifically an exile's hope. 
If you are here last week, then you remember that Pastor Derek, our lead pastor, preached via video to us, and he introduced our brand new sermon series, walking through the first two verses of 1 Peter, which is the opening greeting. And, and you may know it's very important uh, to understand that when you study a book of the Bible, we need to know who wrote it, who did they write it to, and why did they write it. And that's what we learned last week. We learn that this letter was written by the Apostle Peter. That's the same Peter you know, the Peter who was a fisherman, who followed Jesus, who walked on water, who ended up denying Christ three times but was restored and became a leader in the early church. And he wrote this letter to a group of churches in what was called Asia Minor or what we know today as modern-day Turkey. And, it's, and he, he tells us right from the start that these believers were elect exiles. And that word exile means a person who's living away from their home. We might also use the word sojourner or stranger. And we saw that these believers, they weren't physical exiles, but rather they were spiritual exiles. Because of their faith in Jesus, their citizenship was in heaven, and therefore they were strangers and outcasts in this world. And as a result, they faced trials, they faced persecution. So Peter wrote to encourage them and to tell them, hey, this is how... To live in exile. That's the title of our series. Living in exile. Because as we saw last week, this message is for us too. Because these words are not just the words of Peter. These are the words of God. We believe the Bible is inerrant, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and infallible. And they're living and active for us today. So if you follow Jesus, that means you're in exile too. The old song says, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. You heard that one? It's a knee slapper. But we're on a journey to a better place. We are citizens of a new kingdom, a perfect kingdom. But in the meantime, this journey that we're on, it's going to be difficult. There's going to be challenges and trials. And that's why Peter starts the whole thing off by talking to these exiles about their hope. If we're going to make it as exiles in a foreign land, then just like Jose Salvador stranded at sea, we need hope. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And let me invite you to stand and let's honor the reading of God's word. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. You can be seated. This morning, we're going to walk through this text, and as we do, I want to tell you two things about an exile's hope. Here's the first. Number one, an exile's hope is a future inheritance. 
New Testament letters often begin with a greeting, right? We saw that last week. And then usually it comes a prayer or a praise, and that's what we have here. So look with me at verse 3, and I want you to put your finger on that number 3, okay? And then I want you to track all the way down your Bible, all the way to the end of verse 12. Do you see that? It's amazing, but in the original language of the New Testament, that is all one big sentence. And we see this a lot in New Testament letters. It's this kind of endless string, this run-on sentence of praise, of praising God. It's got a lot of depth. It's got so much depth. We're going to do one uh, paragraph today. We're going to do the next paragraph next week. But notice how Peter kicks off the whole thing in verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some translations use the word praise. Peter begins the whole thing by putting the focus on God. He says, hey, this is about him. He is the reason you exist. He is what life is about. And here's what God has done. Here's why we're praising him. He says it's according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again. Man, I think I could stop right there and preach us home. Because <laughs> that is the gospel. And that is the gospel that according to his great mercy, we've been born again. Do you understand what this means? It means God had mercy on you and me. That means God has not given us what we deserve. I mean, we made it super clear in Revelation that you and I are sinners who deserve God's judgment. God is perfect and holy, and it would be completely just and fair for him to just wipe us out, or at the very least to just ignore us and leave us in our sin. But no, he has mercy on us. He chooses not to give us what we deserve. And instead of punishing us, he causes us to be born again. I grew up in a, a Baptist church my whole life, and I remember uh, born again was kind of a church phrase that we used a lot growing up in the Baptist church. The preacher said, hey, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Have you been washed by the blood? And we say things like that. And people who didn't grow up in church, they're like, whoa, whoa, what's going on with the blood and all that? And so that phrase, what does it mean to be born again? It simply means to be given a new life. It means to become a new person. That's what becoming a Christian is. It's not adopting a new set of rules or a new religion. It's like being born as a baby all over again with a new life and a new chance and fresh start. And the emphasis here in this verse is on God's role in our being born again. The Bible makes clear that we must repent and believe to be born again. But ultimately, God is the one who saves. He's the one who changes us. I was born in Murfreesboro, Tennessee on July 19th, 1991. Stop trying to calculate my age. I know whenever somebody says when they're born, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to be 30 this year. It's going to be awesome. But uh, is that funny? No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> Murfreesboro, Tennessee, anybody been through there before? Yeah, a couple people. That's where I was born. Uh, they have a statue right out front. I'm kidding. No, <laughs> But believe it or not, I had no say where or when I was born. Can you believe that? My own mother, did, she did not consult me on which hospital she was going to use or what doctor was going to carry me into this new world or what day it was going to happen on. I had no say. And in the same way, we cannot take credit for our spiritual birth. Ephesians 2.8 tells us we've been saved by grace through faith, and this is a gift from God. So if you're with me so far, we're, we're praising God for his mercy and saving us. Man, that's a reason to praise. But Peter is not primarily concerned in these verses 
with what we've been saved from. That's what we often think about. Like, man, I've been saved from my sin. I've been saved from hell, and that's awesome. That's a big deal. But we aren't just saved from something. We're also saved to something. And this is the big point. This is the most important phrase of the whole text today. He says he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are saved to a living hope. Those are the key words. They, they wrote a whole song about it. Isn't that a good song? I love that. But what is living hope? Remember what we said. Hope is a confident expectation. So our hope is in something still to come, something in the future. But it is a living hope. It's not just like waiting around like, man, I sure hope I get rescued one day. I'm really tired of eating all these jellyfish. No, it's I confidently expect that my rescue is going to come. So I'm scanning the horizon. I'm looking for a ship. I'm staying alive. I'm fighting for survival. My hope is a living hope. It's active and moving and alive. And this hope is living because it comes through the resurrection of Jesus. How can we have such great hope? How can we have this confident expectation? On a more practical level, how do we know as Christians that any of this is real? How can we have the audacity to be so presumptuous and any other big words I could think of to, to think that we are going to be in heaven when we die? Here's how we know. It's because the tomb is still empty. The resurrection is what makes our hope different from the world's hope. What Jesus did, that's where our confidence comes from. So I don't wonder what will happen to me when I die. I don't hope and pray that, man, somehow I make it to heaven by the skin of my teeth. I don't hope that, man, God will have pity on me and let me in. I'll be good enough that I can go in there and walk the streets of gold. I don't doubt and wonder, you know, what's going to happen to the world and what kind of world my kids are going to grow up. And I'm wringing my hands. I can't believe this is how, you know. No. I'm confident. I know I will be in heaven when I die. I know there's a purpose for everything that happens in this life. I know that God is in control. I know what the future holds. I know because the tomb is still empty. The resurrection of Jesus, it is the down payment for my salvation. It's the guarantee of what's to come. I think about it like an engagement ring. And I proposed to my wife. I uh, got down on one knee, and man, I was, I was so nervous. I said some really sweet things I don't remember. Um, and I said, Amber, uh, will you marry me? And after much prayer, uh, she said, I guess. No, I'm kidding. She, <laughs> she said yes. She said yes, and I, I couldn't believe it. I, I, was, woo, I was so excited. So I, I jumped up, and I put the ring on her finger to show her my commitment to be her husband till death do us part, right? See, that's how the resurrection is for us. It means that Jesus has secured our salvation. He has made a commitment to you. He's put a ring on your finger. He said, it's done. It's over. You're mine. And that's why the resurrection is so important. Paul went so far in 1 Corinthians 15 to say, hey, if Christ was not raised, then our faith is in vain. He said, if Christ was not raised, we of all people are to be pitied the most. There's no resurrection. There's no engagement ring. There's no wedding planning. We're just playing house, right? Without the resurrection, we have no hope. But Jesus is alive, so our hope is alive. Verse, verse 4, Peter then speaks of what exactly our hope is. 
He says it's to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our living hope is a future inheritance. Now, what does that mean? What is our inheritance? Well, it's interesting, this word inheritance is used in the Old Testament to speak of the land that God promised the Israelites. You'll remember uh, Father Abraham, who had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. That's how I always think of him. God promised Abraham he was going to give him a land that was called Canaan. And it comes to be known as the promised land, and Moses leads the people to that place so that they can be with God in his place as his people. That's their inheritance. And they journey as sojourners and exiles through all these other lands and all these challenges to finally reach that inheritance. See, in the same way, our inheritance is to be in a place with God as his people. And we, too, are on a journey to that place. But, man, our inheritance is so much greater than a piece of land. Our inheritance is in a new heaven and a new earth. It's a perfect city. That's why he says it's imperishable. Man, that's where our hope is. But that's not where a lot of people put their hope. It's not where a lot of Christians put their hope. Some of us put our hope in money or success, or career, or even family. We want good health and good retirement, good kids, and and those things are great, but they don't last. Money runs out. People fail us. Success is fleeting. Even happiness is a temporary feeling. Why then do we pour so much of our lives into things that don't last? I was reminded of this when we bought our first home two years ago. Like most people, you know, really excited. We dreamed of having our own place and, you know, having a family there and have the backyard where the kids could run around and play. But boy, owning a home is a lot of work and it is expensive. I don't know what's up, but things keep breaking. Like the shower leaks, the carpet stains, the floor creaks. And don't get me wrong, we, we love our home. I'm so grateful God has given it. It's a, it's a great blessing. But, man, every time I have to fix something, or better yet, every time I have to pay for someone else to fix something, I am reminded that this is not my permanent home. 15804 West 151st Terrace, that is not my home forever because one day that home will fall to the ground, hopefully when I'm not in it. <laughs> but I got a better home than that. I got a forever home, a perfect home. I'm in exile, so my hope's in a future inheritance. Our inheritance is eternal, and it's also secure. Look at verse 5. It says, who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I already mentioned, we, we often think of salvation as something that happened in the past, like Jesus died, I believed, and that's that. But the Bible also speaks of our salvation as future. Yes, we have been saved now, but we will also be saved then. Jesus is going to come back. We're going to be with him. That's still to come. And until that day, we are being guarded by God's power. And this is meant to bring us confidence. Think about these first century believers. They they lived in an evil Roman empire with guys like Nero who hated Christians and wanted to destroy them. So Peter reminds him, he says, hey, you're being guarded by God's power. You are untouchable. Nothing can happen to your, in- your inheritance. What are they going to do, kill you? <laughs> it's in heaven. So our hope is in a future inheritance, man. Do you, do you see how important this is? This means as, as followers of Jesus, we are never hopeless. 
If you put your hope in money, what happens when you go broke? If you put your hope in a career, what happens when you lose your job? If you put your hope in family, what happens when you lose a loved one? If you put your hope in happiness, what happens when things don't go your way? Man, as followers of Jesus, our hope is living. It's based in what Christ has done, and it cannot be taken away. But until then, what do we do? I mean, that's great. We've got the future to look forward to, but what about now? What about the present? Well, here's our second point. It's number two, an exile's hope is a present joy. Look with me at verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Here's one of the big clues that the people Peter was writing to who received this letter originally, they were suffering. They were going through various trials. We don't know exactly what was going on, but they were having a difficult time. And so Peter tells us three things about dealing with trials. For one, he says they're only a little while. If this world is not our home, then any trials we face here are temporary. That doesn't mean they don't hurt. Yes, life hurts. Yes, life is difficult, but the pain will not last forever. Romans 8.18 says that present suffering cannot compare with the glory that awaits us. Secondly, he tells us that trials are necessary. It's that little phrase, if necessary. Man, that's significant. Because it tells us that suffering as a Christian is what we signed up for. This is something we're going to see a lot more later in this book. But trials, challenges, difficulties, these things are necessary. They are not accidents or fate or karma or bad luck. Trials are a part of following Jesus. Which leads us to the third thing Peter tells us about dealing with trials. They should lead us to rejoice. And this is totally backwards from what comes natural. I don't know about you, but when I face a trial, I'm like, come on, man, why me? Why now? And we complain and we mope and we run away, but the Bible consistently presents trials as something that Christians should rejoice about. When bad things happen to us, we should actually have joy. How's that possible? That's, that's insane. Why would we rejoice at something bad? Here's why. We see it in verse 7. It says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, it perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's why we rejoice in trials. Because it strengthens our faith and it brings glory to Jesus. Trials test our faith. Man, that's when things get real. It's easy for a Christian to have faith in church, but what about in the hospital room? It's easy for a Christian to have faith when life is going well, but what about when everything's falling apart? When I look back over my life, the seasons where my faith grew in Jesus the most were the seasons where I suffered the most. I don't want to go back and relive those times, but I wouldn't trade them. Because I learned, I grew than any other time in my life. That's why the Bible compares trials to gold being purified by fire. You see, one of the ways that the impurities of gold are removed is by placing it in extremely hot temperatures. Fire does not damage pure gold, but rather it strengthens it. Verse 7, that says that's how your faith is. And it's even more precious than pure gold. 
We face trials, we rejoice because we're being purified. We're being grown. We're, we're being strengthened in the Lord. And most importantly, we can rejoice in trials because they're opportunities to bring glory to Jesus. In sports, the, the measure of a true fan is not how devoted they are when their team is winning. Everybody cheers for the winning team. No, it's how devoted they are when their team stinks. So to have food on the table, money in the bank, good health, a good family, those are reasons to glorify God and thank him. A lot of people do, and that's great. But think of the devotion and glory that Jesus gets when you're sick, dying, poor, broke, and got jack diddly and squat to your name, and yet you say Jesus is enough. You have no greater testimony than what you say and do when life stinks. We rejoice when trials come our way because it's an opportunity to glory, glorify Jesus. So Peter commends the church, and then he says this in these last two verses, verses 8 and 9. He says, though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you don't now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. These first century Christians, like us, they had not seen Jesus in person. They never saw him physically, and yet they still loved him and believed in him. And Peter says, hey, that's great, because he did see Jesus. He spent three years with Jesus. He saw his miracles. He heard his teachings. Yet we don't get that opportunity. We claim to follow someone we've never met in person. We worship and sing to a God we can't see. And the world thinks, you guys are crazy. You're ridiculous. You believe in some fairy tale just to make you feel better about life? The world thinks we're weird. That's okay. We are pretty weird. At least I am. We're sojourners. We're strangers. We were made for another world. We're like aliens from another planet. Man, our faith is not built on what we can or can't see. Our faith is built on what we know to be true in our hearts. Our faith is built on what Jesus did for us. And even though we can't see him right now, even though we're exiles, we still have a spiritual relationship, a personal relationship with him. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have the body of Christ right here. We have the perfect word of God. And most importantly, we have hope. We're that crazy guy in the boat saying, I know one day my feet will stand on dry land again. We know that we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. See, because of what Christ did in the past, we have a future hope that brings us present joy. And that word joy is so important. Believers rejoice with joy, double joy, that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Joy that is so great, so amazing. Man, it's impossible to even explain, to express. People don't understand it. And this means that followers of Jesus must be people of joy. Yet I'm sad to say that some of the meanest, grumpiest, angriest people I've ever met, I met in church. Man, that can't be. A grumpy Christian is an oxymoron. An angry Christian, a complaining Christian, a bitter Christian, a Christian that doesn't smile or laugh, those things don't go together. Christians should be people of joy. The church should be a place bursting with joy. Listen, did you know it's okay if we laugh? <laughs> 
It's okay if we clap a little bit. It's okay if we shout. Can I get an amen? amen. Oh, I'll feel better. And look, that doesn't mean we're always happy and bubbly and outgoing. This is not naivety or fake optimism. We need introverts too, amen. But this joy, it's unwavering, it's steady, it's deep down, it's old-fashioned joy. It's a joy that doesn't rise or fall with the tides of life, but that stays rooted like an anchor. It's deep, it's steady. And we have that joy because of our hope. We have that joy because we know how this thing ends. We know what's coming. It's like watching a movie with someone who's already seen it. Isn't that so annoying? Because you're sitting there in suspense like, oh, man, I don't know if they're going to make it. I don't know if he's going to end up and pick the right girl. And I don't know if the good guy is going to win this. And the person who's seen it, like, oh, don't worry. Yeah, he, he dies in the end. <laughs> or, yeah, they end up. It's all good. It all ends. You're like, no, stop. We don't like that when watching a movie. But, man, we want that in life. And as Christians, we have that confident expectation. As believers, we know how the movie ends. We are those annoying people who have already watched the ending and we want to get on Facebook and spoil it for everyone else. Okay? That's it. Spoiler alert. Jesus wins. And we're with him forever. And everyone else is clueless. They're putting their hope in all sorts of things that they think will matter in the end. And people live their lives in suspense, terrified of what's going to jump out around the next corner. And they put their hope in their possessions or their abilities or in how they feel or in some form of government or in education or in a person or, or that person. And their hope is a wish. It's a desire. It's something they want to be true. Something they really hope is true. But that's not the case for us. We hope in what we know. We have a confident expectation. It's a guarantee. We have a living hope. We know how it all turns out. And we know that one day as we scan the horizon, we will see our rescue. We will step out of that boat that carried us for 14 long months, and we will fall on the sand of the shore, and we will say, thank you, Jesus, we're home. But until then, we sail some rough waters. The wind doesn't always blow our way. But we sail with hope, a living hope, a hope that gives us joy and a steady anchor no matter the storm, a future hope that brings present joy because of Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.